be seated. Go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 9. If you have your Bible, there's also a Bible under the seat in front of you if you didn't bring your Bible with you. But Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to spend our time this morning in verses 18 to 22. A month or so ago, I watched a documentary called The Work. And this is a documentary that's recorded in Folsom Prison, made famous by Johnny Cash, of course, which is a maximum security prison in California. And the whole documentary records as men from outside the prison go inside the prison to walk through counseling and therapy with inmates. So they're not giving them counsel, they're being counseled or walking through this therapy together. And it is emotional, it's, it's really a crazy documentary, it's heart-wrenching at times. But one of the common themes with all of the men, the inmates and those who come into the prison, in their despair, in their sin, in their hurt, all of it traces back to, one of the common themes it traces back to is that all of these men have been rejected by fathers, abandoned by fathers, abused by fathers. It shows men both in prison and out of prison, as I mentioned, that don't know where to go with this rejection. They haven't known where to go with this abandonment or this abuse. And so this is men who, again, aren't just men who have committed crimes. They're also men with families and kids and a a day job. And they have far more in common than they would have ever realized before they entered into that counseling and therapy. And I would argue, although to a varying degree for most of us, As different as we are, we have much more in common than we would ever realize. Living in this world with our sin and with other people's sin, we have all endured rejection and abandonment and hurt and suffering. And all of us, like these men, have had to try to figure out what to do with that stuff, where to go with that mess, where to go with that brokenness and fracture and difficulty. I would assume many of you like me get tired of the mess and the frustration and the difficulty that we see and experience. We get exhausted by sin and suffering and death. We groan, as the scriptures even talk about, with the pain that lives in us and around us, even if we don't talk about it. Yet it is into these very things that Jesus acts and speaks here in Luke Chapter 9, a broken, needy, helpless, hopeless people, and into their lives, into ours, he speaks of life through suffering. So let's go ahead and read from Luke chapter 9. We're just going to read verses 18 to 22. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, what do the, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. 
I want to walk through this section three main points. And first, we'll see a leading question in verses 18 to 20, and then a clear command given in verse 21, and then finally, a specific plan that Jesus lays out in verse 22. As you saw as we read through this section, it's relatively brief. There's not a lot of detail given in Luke's account. We actually have a lot more detail and and a different emphasis in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 16 gives us a little more about this. But here Luke is addressing a specific audience with a very specific purpose. So what we have here is exactly what God is wanting to highlight through Luke. And it begins by telling us that Jesus was praying alone or in privacy. He had gotten away to pray, but his disciples are with him. And one thing that we see throughout Luke's gospel, maybe you've noticed this as we've been walking through it, is that in the life and ministry of Jesus, prayer occurs at very significant points in this redemption story. It's not that he isn't praying elsewhere or even praying at all times, but it's highlighted here by Luke. We see it at his baptism in chapter 3. We see it at the call of the 12 in chapter 6. This confession of Peter here in chapter 9. And then we'll see it show up at the transfiguration, the temptation, and the crucifixion. So it's at very key points in this redemption story. So here again, Jesus prays. And then Jesus immediately asked the disciples what I'm calling a leading question. And it's not because the answer is in the question. He's not feeding them the answer. But because he isn't just gathering information here when he asks this of the disciples. His question is actually leading towards something. Something we'll see play out in the next couple of verses. I think the question is really about getting to verse 22. The question being, who do the crowds say that I am? Jesus is not gauging poll numbers. He's not trying to figure out how popular he is among the people from his disciples. He is, as he often does, teaching through questions. So the first question is, who do the crowd say that I am? This is an identity question. This is not how we normally interact or introduce ourselves to people. If we were to meet someone this morning, we would be gathering information. We would be asking good questions. What's your name? Where are you from? How long have you been at CCF? What do you do? It would be a bit awkward if you shook someone's hand this morning and and said, who are you? Right? Or looked at someone with them and said, who do you say that he is? Right? Those aren't normal conversation starters. That's not how we gather information about people. But Jesus is asking something far more than if they have his name right or if they know some of the things that he's done. In chapter 8, verse 25, the disciples ask, who is this? He commands the winds and the water, and they obey him. Identity question. They've seen him do these miraculous things, and they ask an identity question. Who is this? Herod, in our text last week, says, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? Identity question. He's not just asking for this guy's name. Something deeper here. And then here in verse 19, the disciples respond to this identity question on behalf of the crowds. And they give these same three options Herod mentioned in our text last week. It was a popular opinion, it seems, about who Jesus was. 
John the Baptist, alive again, Elijah, or a prophet of old. And these are great men to be compared to. It's not like this is an insult from the perspectives of many of these people. These are great godly men in the history of the faith. But even these comparisons are completely inadequate for who Jesus is. They fall far short of who Jesus is. And then just as quickly as they give an answer, again, we don't get much detail here, Jesus moves to another question. And this is one of the most significant questions we see in the New Testament. And it's another identity question. But who do you say that I am? In Matthew, Mark, and here in Luke, you there is emphatic. In a clear distinction from what others think, he's asking them, who do you believe that I am? Who do you think that I am? This is no longer about what other people think. It's not about even what the majority hold to. It's not even what you think might be the right answer. Who do you believe that I am? Who am I to you? If you've grown up in the church, you know the joke about giving a Sunday school answer, right? Jesus, God, Bible answers 95% of Sunday school answer questions, right? And the problem is not that five-year-old's answer of Jesus. It, it may be correct. But do they actually believe it? Or have they just figured out what answer is required here to get the prize or the applause that comes with the right answer? Jesus isn't concerned with you being able to give the right answer. He's concerned with you believing it. And the question has remained the same. Who do you say that he is? Not who do your parents say that he is. Not who do your pastors or a good book or respected individuals in your life say that he is. Who do you say that he is? This is a question we all have to answer and believe. And not just answer with the correct answer, but believe what he has revealed about himself. There are many opinions of Jesus, both inside and outside the church. He's a great moral teacher. He's a good guy. He's someone that we can look to as an example, even a prophet. Within the church, there can even be a mental acknowledgement that, yeah, this was probably the Messiah they were looking forward to, without true submission to him as Lord and Messiah. True belief. Maybe you showed up this morning and you don't know much about Jesus. Or maybe you've heard and read about him your entire life. Either way, I pray that this morning you will not only know him as Lord and Savior, but you will live in light of that reality, that you actually believe it. You actually believe what he has revealed about himself and, and who he is. That you will see that he should be the only one worthy of your life and even your death, which Jesus will move right into in verse 23 in our next section where he tells them to take up their cross and follow. After he reveals this to them, after he asks them this question and he shows them what he's about to do, he then sends them out recognizing this will change everything about them. So who do you think he is, and what difference does it make this morning? The answer Peter gives models for us the answer that every believer since then has been called to give and to confess. 
that Jesus is Lord, God's Messiah. This is the first human confession we have here in Luke of Jesus as Messiah. And and praise God, it was far from the last. I pray that even this morning, people will for the first time make this confession in our gathering and, and in churches around the world as they hear and see and believe and submit. And I pray for many of us, for the thousandth time, we're reminded of the truth of this confession. Peter answers the Christ of God or God's Messiah. Peter is saying that Jesus is the deliverer that the people of God have been waiting for. They've been anticipating. He is the one. And as we see in Matthew's account, this was not even his own discovery. He didn't wake up one morning and and just realize, oh yeah, that's God's Messiah. This was a revelation of God. God was at work here. Matthew 16 tells us Jesus' response to him. Says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And remember also, this comes directly after the feeding of the 5,000 in Luke's arrangement, showing us that the miracles they've witnessed, the work Jesus has been doing, has been working in the hearts and lives, lives of the disciples to confirm this truth, to make this a reality to them that He is the Messiah. And what is Luke's gospel written to do? Give certainty concerning these things, Luke 1, verse 4. So may we, as the people of God, have that same type of certainty about who Jesus is as we read these faithful, reliable accounts. So these questions that Jesus is asking show us what the crowds believe about his identity and then what the disciples believe about his identity. Very different answers with very different implications for what life looks like. And so the way you answer that question is of the utmost importance this morning. Because his mercy will not be extended to you forever. He has promised that one day he will return to judge the living and the dead once and for all. Which is why we must answer the question now, who is Jesus? Jesus is the king. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He came to be your substitute so that all who believe may have life in his name. He is the savior of the world that came for sinners and rebels, the dead and their trespasses like you and I. And all we must do is turn from our sin and trust in this Jesus. Repent and believe. Who do you think he is and what difference does it make? But even though Peter confesses this identity for Jesus, he, along with the disciples, along with us, will continue to grow in their understanding of who he is and what he must do. And Jesus will explain that to them in verse 22, but before that, he gives a clear command. The command comes in verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. And we see that show up throughout different points in the Gospels. It's always maybe a little surprising to us. Peter confesses this truth and then he's told to not talk about it. To not tell anyone. Well, it's obvious the command doesn't mean that the confession isn't 
accurate. They are not to tell anyone because it is true and because it's beyond people's understanding. And Jesus is walking a very clear, specific path to the cross. So this would be something that would clearly be misunderstood if it was spread throughout the area. You even see how intentional he has been in bringing his disciples along to this being the first point in the text where he tells them what he's about to do. The Jews were a people that hated the rule of the Romans and had been waiting for a physical, political deliverer. So they were ready. They were ready to get behind someone that would lead them out of that, someone that could back that up. And so Jesus could back that up, and it would run in a different direction than where Jesus was headed with this. This would to them have been primarily and most importantly about a military or political conquest. And this would have caused things to go differently. Jesus had a very specific plan for what he was about to do. This was not the mission Jesus was on, to give political earthly victory. He was on a mission of suffering and serving and rejection and death that would lead to abundant life now and forever. Not a mission of earthly conquest, not a mission of earthly freedom and comfort. So this is a temporary silence given to his disciples. Once he's raised from the dead, we know that the disciples are commissioned to the ends of the earth with this message. And as those on this side of the cross, as we discussed last week, we are now sent out as his messengers with the message of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that message is what Jesus begins to reveal in our final verse, verse 22, where we see a specific plan. Let's read verse 22 again. Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the first time in Luke's gospel that Jesus predicts his death. And it has been so intentional as Jesus has walked his disciples, this intimate group of followers, to this point. He didn't say it the first time he gathered with them, the first time he called them. He didn't lay this all out for them. There was much work that needed to be done. So he prepares his disciples. He chooses them. He calls them and walks with them. And then here for the first time, he tells them exactly what's awaiting. And you get a bit more of that reaction again in Matthew as Peter responds to that. There's kind of a back and forth. He He's a bit surprised by this response. This is not where he thought Jesus was going with the conversation as he's responding to his question. But you'll notice Jesus' plan doesn't say that the Son of Man is just going to head up to Jerusalem and let's see what happens. Let's see how people are responding to me. Let's see what, what, what we make of this. I, I don't know where this is going, right? He doesn't say that he's, we're going to go ahead and just try to figure out what they think and see how it all plays out. He, he has a specific plan. He doesn't even say that this might happen or this will happen. Jesus says that the Son of Man must, must suffer. 
This is the divine, sovereign plan. He's constrained to go because that's why he came. That's why he took on flesh. This is the mission that Jesus is on. Because the Father loved the world so much that he sent his Son for sinners like us. This is a specific, sovereign plan of God. That the way of redemption, the way of our hope and salvation, the way of the Messiah would not first be a crown, but would be a cross, would be suffering, rejection, mocking, and death. If we claim, as many do, to worship a Christ without atonement, without suffering, without bloodshed, without the need to take our place, then we do not worship the biblical Christ. And from this point in Luke on, we're going to see him begin to walk with more focus towards that suffering. His mission begins to focus in as you continue to read through Luke, and we'll study that together. You see that start to narrow in as he walks towards that. But he's clear about what must happen here. He says, first, that he must suffer many things. Second, he must be rejected. Third, he must be killed. And fourth, he must be raised on the third day. So this suffering, this rejection and death that is coming, that must come, is not even by the works of godless and wicked people from the world's perspective. But it's by the elders, by the chief priests and and scribes, teachers of the law, not by the liberals or the godless of society, but through the lawful and religious leaders who think they are actually doing the work of God. John 16, verse 2 says, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. It would be the people of God who would put to death the Son of God. It would be our sin that would put to death the Son of God. And we'll spend more time talking about this, especially as we get to Luke 22 through 24. But we know that the cross was not the end of the story. We know that this specific plan also includes the last line of verse 22. That on the third day, he would be raised. The resurrection was just as certain as the mocking. The resurrection was just as certain as the suffering and the death and the crucifixion. In God's good plan, this suffering servant, this awful moment was planned to be the moment that would fix all of the dark and destructive things that sin had done. This moment of unjust suffering would guarantee that suffering would one day end. Once and for all. That any rejection or loss or suffering or conflict that we endure is not ultimate. And it's not the end. So the absolute worst thing that could happen, the plan that Jesus lays out here of his suffering and his death, was at the very same time the absolute best thing that could happen. And only God's Messiah 
could accomplish that for his people. No one but Jesus could accomplish what he plans and predicts here. I started this morning by bringing our attention to the fact that not one of us is immune to hurt and rejection, loss and suffering. It's a part of life in a sinful world with sinful people. And holidays, even like Thanksgiving, for some of us can highlight that loss, can highlight the brokenness, can highlight the not rightness of those situations. Maybe as we celebrate without people for the first time, or we celebrate across from the table with people that we struggle with or have friction with or aren't there because of the brokenness. Yet the plan that Jesus laid out for his disciples here was a a plan that meant that the God who made us, who took on flesh and dwelt among us, would experience all of the things that we experience, suffer what we should suffer, be mocked and rejected by the ones he came to save, and then die the death we deserve so that sin and suffering and rejection and death no longer have the final word. No longer get the final say for the Christ follower. In the context of the resurrection, Paul writes, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the plan. This was what Jesus endured and conquered for our sake. This is what Jesus was about to endure and suffer and then conquer through the resurrection. He's preparing his disciples to receive this word, to recognize what Jesus would do, and and then equip them to rest in that work so they could spend the rest of their lives making him known. And the same is true for us as the people of God. Every Sunday, we gather here around the Word to be reminded of this truth so that we can be better equipped to be sent out to make much of Him, to trust and believe the promises of God that He makes to His disciples here so that we don't waste Monday through Saturday, so that we spend our lives making much of the one who suffered in our place. And I know it's not even Easter Sunday Are we allowed to talk about the resurrection? But I want us to end with that last thought ringing in our ears, the last couple words of this text ringing in our ears, because I believe the the resurrection that Jesus predicts here is where our victory is secured, where the, the heavy, difficult things of everyday life that you've experienced this very week, no doubt, maybe all of your life, for some of you, where those things start to loosen their grips just a little bit on our hearts and lives as we're reminded again of who Jesus is and what he's done and and how he's defeated those things. Not that they aren't still difficult and heavy, but as that famous hymn says, that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I don't just think that's stuff, the things we pursue. I think that's also the mess of life. It it grows a little bit more dim 
as we look upon Jesus, we see his grace and his goodness and who he is. As we sitting here this morning consider what Jesus says he must do here in Luke chapter 9, as the disciples, I mean, you think about how they're considering what Jesus is actually saying, what this will do for them, and then what we ultimately know he did do, I think there are a lot of implications we could take away from this. And I want to just close our time by considering a few. The first is that the finished work of the Messiah means that things will not be like this forever. And for some of you, maybe that's not good news. Maybe life is good. You've got everything you want. You want this to last forever. But the reality of life, I think, shows us quickly that sin, all of the things that come along with that mess this up. But the good news is it won't be like this forever. Life is not just history repeating itself. God has a specific plan and end in mind. And it was beginning to take shape here in Luke chapter 9. You and I are walking towards something we can't even imagine. We can't even fathom what God is doing right now and what he will do for all eternity. And as children of God, we get to be a part of that. God will one day take us out of this broken world and sin and suffering will be no more. That back pain will be no more. That conflict, that stress, the heaviness of life, that's just there, right? Will be no more. It will be gone. Things will not be like this forever. We need that. We need that hope. We need to remember that together. We need to remind one another of that. The second is that the finished work of the Messiah motivates us to trust and obey no matter what. No matter what has happened to you, no matter what will happen to you, he reigns as the resurrected king and his purpose and plan will be accomplished. His plans have always been accomplished. They have always come to fruition and we know that. The resurrected king proves that to us. Sin will not win because of what Jesus did as our suffering servant in our place. Righteousness will win. It has won. That means that you have the ability to fight your sin and honor him. He rules and reigns and you now have the ability to fight sin. It motivates us to trust and obey him. And that's connected to the third, which is that the finished work of the Messiah means that Jesus now rules and reigns. It did not end in the grave. And for us, that means that we know the mess that's in us and all around us is not out of control. It's under the sovereign control and care of our resurrected king. The one who once and for all defeated sin and death. Jesus now rules and reigns. And finally, the finished work of the Messiah means that every Christ follower has reason to give thanks. We can be such a thankful people this morning and every day that God grants us on this earth. Because what matters most you didn't earn and what matters most, you can't lose. So we have the greatest reason to be thankful as the people of God. To live in thankfulness for Christ and his work on our behalf. 
you and I have been brought into something that is just unreal if we actually step back and think about it, that we get to be a part of, that we get to be brought into secure, our future secure by the grace of God. And not only our future, but in Christ, we can have a life of joy and peace. Regardless of what happens as you leave this place, what happens over the next month, or what happened the last two years, what will happen in 2022, we don't know any of that. But regardless of what does, we can live in thankfulness as the people of God. The finished work of our Messiah, God's Messiah, means that we can be thankful today. Instead of grumbling and complaining and being bitter, getting frustrated with everything around us, being a grouch around the holidays, it is so easy to just wear that on our sleeves and to to live that way and, and not walk in thankfulness. But to step back, it's so hard for us to step back and look at the big picture of what God has done and is doing. We get so focused in on the work, on the people, on the mess, on our own hurt, instead of backing away and looking at what Christ has accomplished. Let's be thankful. We can live in thankfulness today as the people of God because of who Jesus is as God's Messiah and because of what he has done. Who do you say that he is and what difference will that make for you today? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to see Jesus. To rest in what Jesus has done. To trust in Jesus. That goes for unbeliever and believer alike. We need that message today from your word. I pray that you would help us to understand how that changes everything for us. I pray for those in this room that have never submitted to the one true king, that have never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. I pray that you would be at work in their heart even now by your spirit, through your word, to help them to see for the first time their need to confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. Give life today. Work to replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And I pray that you would remind those who do know you of the truth of who Jesus is for us, who he was for us, and how that impacts everything that we do today as followers of you. Pray that it would cause us to worship again today, to have hearts of joy and thankfulness, to not freak out because everything around us is chaos, but to, to rest and trust in the sovereign work of our Redeemer. Father, only you can do any of this work. Not a, a sermon not good intentions, not guilt, but God at work in the hearts and lives of people who have trusted in Jesus Christ. So work in and through us today. Cause us to be faithful. Help us to love you and one another. Let us go from this place making much of the one true 
Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we trust and pray, in whom we look forward to seeing again soon. Father, we pray that you would come quickly. But in the meantime, cause us to make much of you together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.